I could see that there were so many coaches that have done EIQ or who follow me who are really freaking good at what they do, but they don't market themselves well, or they don't know how to run a business, or they don't know how to package up a product and sell it. And it was like all these skills that were missing. And I was like, I don't want to see all these amazing coaches leave the industry or not have the incredible impact that they could be having. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Stay Hungry podcast. Today, our special guest is online fitness coach, Emma Story-Gordon, multiple business owner. She's got the number one fitness podcast in the UK and has helped thousands and thousands of women lose weight and keep it off. This will be a good one. Let's go. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Excellent. excellent. Well, lots to talk about, but we tend to always start with the three W's. So, I mean, would you like to explain to our listeners what you do, who for, and why? Oh, I like it. Okay, so I actually do numerous different things, but I think right now I'll just say what I do is primarily help usually women who feel like they've been dieting their whole lives finally get results that they can maintain. So like the typical yo-yo dieter tends to be now that my client base is generally menopausal women, but not always, and essentially like breaking down common misconceptions around dieting and actually allowing people to action what they need to do to get results fantastic um and i mean when you say menopausal women so so is that specified was that what 35 to 50 or i mean do you, do you look after any any men join your programs or is it, no it's, it's it's women only so the way that i really like to think about this and i guess this is related to a lot of what you do is i don't think about niche as the demographic of people that i work with i think about the problem that they have so if you're someone who struggled with yo-yo dieting then i can help you right and that might be men it might be women they might be 20 they might be 60 it doesn't really matter it just so happens that the majority is like women of a like i mean older age normally probably between like 30 and 60 um and it does tend to be women as opposed to men but i'm not like shut off to it being you know I don't care if you're a man or a woman or anything in between I have no judgment on that I'm helping you with the specific problem that you're having that's what like that's what my focus is excellent and is that what gets you up in the morning I mean we're big fans of Simon Sinek here start with why so so what is your big why what makes you leap out of bed to to help these people in the morning so I really want to help more people I'm also really passionate now I guess I've in some aspects, like moved on from directly coaching clients. And now I work with a lot of coaches. So I run a business mentorship and I'm really passionate about helping great coaches help more people. I think within the fitness industry, there's a lot of not so great coaches that are actually doing better than the really good coaches because they're more likely to market themselves. They're more likely to put themselves out there. And it's trying to help the really good coaches get to the forefront of the fitness industry and make sure that, you know, people are getting the help that they want and that they need and that it's going to improve their life. So that's how I see it scale. Like for me, it's always been like, how many people can I impact? Mm-hmm. So that's why I'm from in-person coaching to online. And then that's why I moved from one-to-one online into group coaching. So now uh, coaching big groups, right? So I can help 600 women in an intake mm-hmm. as opposed to just one person or however many people I can deal with one-to-one and then like over and above that then I started an education course with my business partner Amelia because we were like we want to help more coaches help more people Mm -hmm. and give them the tools to do that and then now I also run a business mentorship so I'm like okay well how can I get these now great coaches because we've educated them extremely well to impact more people and it tends to be you know whether it's like Dunning-Kruger effect or whether it's like imposter syndrome but I find that the best coaches are the least likely to market themselves well. And I think mm-hmm. and this is something I've seen more and more in the industry as things like social media take off and like reels go viral and all this stuff. And it's like now the coaches that are doing the best aren't the best coaches. They're the best marketers. And I think we need to help the best coaches become better marketers or whether it's the best marketers or they're just the best on social media, right? They, they know how to make a reel go viral or they're very good at like short form content, but they're not necessarily actually good coaches. So I kind of want to bridge that gap a little bit and be like, do you know what? You don't have to be an influencer. I'm not telling you to spend all your time doing freaking reels on Instagram or TikTok or whatever, but you do need to play the game and you do need to do a bit of both. And that's yeah. how you're going to attract 
people and that's how you're going to help more people yeah i mean that's the reality isn't it it's uh, a lot of time how you market yourself in our game the analogy we always use is that Betamax was better than vhs but vhs won the battle because they were better marketers but of course i realize now most people in my office they haven't got a clue what fucking vhs and Betamax is. so I, I need to think of a new a, a new analogy um but yeah and and you mentioned imposter syndrome i'm in uh, paul mort's mastermind so obviously he talks about that a lot you're on the panel with him at ifs um but but if we sort of flip right back i mean you're interested in, in fitness health nutrition how did it all start for you were you like super sporty kid or were you sort of know you, you were last in the cross country, but but you had some light bulb moment. What was sort of like younger Emily like, and, and where did it start for you? Um, I have always been somewhat into health and fitness, and it definitely helped me. So I've got ADHD, so it definitely helped me kind of like focus my energy on something. So I've always been pretty sporty, and then when I was at uni, I did sports science, the standard thing oh. that all sporty people do. And then it was actually towards the end of my sports science degree, we did a module on how exercise can impact disease and in particularly type two diabetes and cardiovascular disease. And that's what I was really interested in. And that's actually what I wanted to do. Now, as a marketer, you probably know that marketing to people who essentially I was like, I want to market to these people who don't really like exercise and don't really want to look at their diet. And I found that quite hard. Right. Mm -hmm. So I've kind of, from that although it is still like a big interest of mine and I did do a couple of years working in cardiovascular disease research and type 2 diabetes research which is so fascinating to me and I'd still love to work in that area to some extent but most of the work I do now is actually to people who want to change their life and want to exercise more and and that's not to say that people who have diabetes don't but as a general population one of the reasons that those lifestyle complications happen is because they're not exercising and they're not looking at their diet. Um, Yeah. And I guess that's generally how I got here. I've always been quite entrepreneurial. I've always not liked working for anybody else. So the only real like direction I could have taken was to start my own business. One of my questions was, was going to be, are you now unemployable? Could you imagine would, how long would you last working for someone else now? I couldn't do it. Like, I, I don't think I would be, I mean, sometimes when I say that on like a podcast or something, I'm like, oh my God, what if one day I have to get a job and they're like, we're not going to employ you because you said that you're unemployable. But actually one of the, I'm sure all business owners struggle with this a bit, but I certainly have a little bit of scarcity mindset around like never wanting to go back to working for anyone ever again. But I've set myself up in a way now that like if all my businesses failed, because I'm very good at saving, I would just start something else, right? And when you've got the capital to start something else, it's a hell of a lot easier to do mm-hmm. that. Um, but yeah, no, I couldn't work for anybody else anymore. And and do you, did you have like, when, when you started going on this journey, did you have a kind of mentor? Was there anyone involved or a kind of light bulb moment? Or like say at university, was it more of a gradual thing that, hey, I could I could make a difference here? Um, it was a big failure, actually. I started a PhD and oh, right. it didn't. Yeah, it didn't, uh, for various reasons. Well, actually, for one main reason, but I won't go too much into it. It it failed, right? And I could have either started the PhD again, or I was already doing a bit of online coaching on the side, like genuinely making about £250 a month, right? Not not like a livable amount of money, but like while I was doing my PhD, that kind of helped me out on the side. Anyway, that failed. And I was like, look, I can either go back and restart it, actually in a project I wasn't that interested in, or I can try and see if this works, if I put my full effort into it. And I think often when I speak to people who have started businesses, there's normally something like that. It's like one door shut. So now they're like, shit, I need to take this seriously. I need to go all in on it. And that's essentially what I did. And then the way that I built my other businesses is essentially what my audience needed, right? So if you think of like, I started coaching clients and then I started building okay well that actually a lot of other coaches are following me and we could see that there was this big gap in the industry for a really good education course that not only would teach people about diet and exercise because there's that already right mm-hmm. or you can go to uni and learn about nutrition you can get a dietetics degree or a nutrition degree or whatever but it doesn't often misses the gap of working with real people so it doesn't teach you how to coach nutrition well or to coach lifestyle change well And when we developed EIQ Nutrition, that's what we really wanted. We were like, so my business partner, Amelia, has a PhD. She's got an academic background. She's written nutrition courses for 
Manchester Uni. Like she she's very good at that side of things. There was still the the application issue with like, okay, well, how do we apply this to coaching? Because you need to take this knowledge and apply it. And that's really what we wanted to do with EIQ. But that was also for the audience that we had. We're like, you know, it wasn't like, oh, we're going to make this course and hopefully find people that want it. It was like, we know that the, the demand is there. And then fast forward a couple of years, I could see that there were so many coaches that have done EIQ or who follow me who are really freaking good at what they do, but they don't market themselves well, or they don't know how to run a business, or they don't know how to package up a product and sell it. And it was like all these skills that were missing. And I was like, I don't want to see all these amazing coaches leave the industry or not have the incredible impact that they could be having purely because they're missing some of those like core fundamental skills or even just like the support to put themselves out there and do it. Because for a lot of people speaking on a podcast or showing up on social media or in content out, like this is a big deal. It takes it takes a lot. And actually having someone be like, hey, you can do this and you're freaking good and I'm backing you. And I only take on coaches to mentor that I believe in and that I back and that I think are incredible and that I want to put out there and help more people. So so does a lot of that boil down to like a, a lack of confidence in in the coaching industry? Like you see, because we see some very loud coaches out there, but then you get to know them, realize maybe they don't know as much as they do as they purport to do. But then you meet the, the quiet people, the ones under the radar, and you sit with them, you're like, shit, you know so much, but no one knows you know so much. You know, what are the sort of commonalities you see in these things that are holding the, the great coaches back? I think sometimes it's a bit of ego, to be totally honest, like to to kind of flip it on its head a little bit. Um, sometimes I think really good coaches think that being a really good coach is enough and it's not. Mm-hmm. And they they almost like, and I've had this before as well, people are like, oh, well, you know, like I don't want to spend all my time on social media. And it's like, okay, cool. Enjoy working with no clients. Like, that's fine. And you kind of have to, like I said, like play the game a little bit. So I do think that some, not all, but some very good coaches, especially when you're looking more at like people who have been at uni or have got like loads of experience or like they think they're very highly qualified. They're like, I'm almost like too good to market myself. People should just know that I'm amazing. It's like, that's not going to work, right? And then I think there's some other people that I spoke briefly about the Dunning-Kruger effect, which is essentially like the more that you know, the more that you realize you don't know that much. So there are a lot of coaches in the industry that I think sit at kind of like the bottom of that, where actually you have a ton of confidence, right? I was there. When I finished my sports science degree, I was like, I know everything I could possibly need to know about being a personal trainer. In fact, I'm probably overqualified. I've got a degree. And then I was just like off on it, right? Like I I, I can help anyone. I can do anything, blah, blah, blah. As soon as you start like delving a little bit deeper and realizing, oh my God, there's so much that I actually don't know. Then you actually have this big drop in confidence, even though you know more than what you did previously when you were more confident. You're like, oh, wow, I've had my eyes open to all this stuff that I don't know. Maybe I'm not that good a coach. Maybe I need to do more education. Maybe I need to go back and do this. Maybe anyway, then you you have this drop in confidence and often then you don't put yourself out there as much. And I think one of the slight negatives to doing EIQ, for example, or like further education is that we open your eyes to what you don't know. Like there's tons you don't know. I'm not the best coach in the world. I'm st- still learning and I've mm. been doing this for 12 years. And I think sometimes that's the issue is that you've got a lot of people who are like, I've learned what a calorie deficit is. That's I know everything. And I'm willing to say that on social media and people buy confidence, right? So they're really confident in their messaging and people buy into that. And it, like their knowledge is like shallow, you know, like that's it is like, yeah, well, if you eat less and move more, you'll lose weight. And it doesn't matter if it's carbs or fats or whatever. If you're in a calorie deficit, you'll lose weight. But it's like, wow, that's really like the depth of your knowledge there. And actually, can you help someone on a practical level when they have real life barriers, you know, and that it's another question. But I think that's often why you see maybe the coaches that don't have the same knowledge with a louder voice. And I mean, you can only see that the, the last word in this quote, but it's from uh, Hen- uh, Henry Ford, is anyone who stops learning is old, whether at 20 or 80. And, and we come across right. that that a, a lot as well. And that, I know some people maybe aren't coachable. Some people don't want to know. They they think they know it all. And, and we used to expend a lot of energy going after those people who were effectively 
swimming away from us, as Paul more often says, rather than focus on the people swimming towards you. So, I mean, in terms of confidence, I mean, are there any kind of like tips or advice you can share to people? Because, I mean, I guess one of the biggest challenges we have is that our job is to make our clients more visible. But with that comes attracting a few of the keyboard warriors. And that's a big fear of them. And it really sort of can harm their confidence. So any kind of tips and insights from your experience you can share in terms of um, helping people with, with confidence challenges? So I think specifically for personal trainers trying to put themselves out there, remember who you're trying to help. And remember that you're not comparing yourself to other people. You know, it's not, you're not saying I'm the best coach here. All you're thinking about is like, right, okay, can I go on social media and help one person today? What am I, what's my target client base and what do they need to know? Or even like, if you're already working with people, you know, what's a discussion that I often have with clients that's helpful, share that. And don't worry if someone else is talking about something else or someone else might know more than you about a certain thing. Because you're not looking to be, most coaches anyway, don't need to be an expert, right? I don't need to know the metabolic pathways behind, I don't know, glucose metabolism. I do because I'm a geek, but, and I might need to know that for EIQ, right? But as a coach, I don't need to know that. I need to know what's practically going to help one of my clients. And when you take the pressure off that, and I just ask coaches, like, do you think you could put something on social media today that would help someone Mm -hmm. who was to know in your position five years ago they're like yeah absolutely okay cool why don't you just share that instead of trying to be an expert and also just taking the pressure off like it's okay to say I don't know I do that all the time if someone's like oh you know what do you think about this research around this 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 and this and I'm like oh I don't know I've not read it fine you don't need to pretend like you know everything about every little complication or every little detail like that's not my niche I don't know it's not my area but this person might be able to help you. Whenever I get asked about children's nutrition, I think just because it's such a minefield and there's so much like psychology in it and like, especially mm-hmm. teenage girls and stuff, not my area. Sorry, not going to comment, right? So yeah, you don't need to be an expert in everything. And I think that takes a lot of pressure off yourself. I have two teenage daughters. So it's just like, uh, I, I'm in the office a lot, got to be honest. Um, um, I, I wanted I want to carry on this thread, but you've mentioned glucose quite a few times and and I've I've got to ask because, you know, I see um, obviously a lot of people talk about calorie deficit. A lot of people seem don't seem to be able to get their head around that. Um, But glucose seems to be a big subject at the moment. I I do admit I've recently bought a book by a certain goddess. Um, Uh, Is that uh, is it a load of bollocks Um, or me, me not eating oats in the morning now because of that spike and then an alleged crash? Or is it like, it's been overblown out of proportion. Someone's making a lot of money somewhere. Do you resistance train? Yes. And you're like, I know you're wearing a hoodie, but you generally, you know, you're not overweight, right? Uh, no, I, I am a bike run, um, jujitsu and, and weights when, when, yeah. when, when I can. I'm going to guess that you are very insulin sensitive. That essentially means that you are more than capable of handling glucose, right? So a completely right. thing to happen when you ingest as an example, oats in the morning, is your glucose levels will rise, right? Because you've eaten carbohydrates. Mm-hmm. And then what will happen is because you're insulin sensitive, insulin will be released, which again, isn't a bad thing. I think people see that as like a demon hormone or something, like not a bad thing, completely normal thing to happen. And what we want to happen, because that signals that glucose to be stored in your cells. Now, predominantly it'll be muscle cells, but some in the liver, and then also some anything that's like left over will be stored as fat fine so that you can use it for later use like that's that's literally how human metabolism should work now in extreme cases like type 2 diabetes like an elevate chronically elevated levels of glucose are bad and it's almost like people have taken oh too much of this Mm -hmm. is bad so some is also bad and it's just a complete oversimplification like most people it's like you do not need to worry about that a hundred percent even so that means like, I, I don't need a teaspoon of white wine vinegar before a meal now then no <laughs> right okay right. and, and i would say a lot of what that glucose goddess um or if we shouldn't say her name whatever that that book like that's completely unfounded the reason that some people get results doing it is because you might start eating less calories right or you might start being a little bit more conscious about what you do eat Now, any change in behavior might make you feel better or feel worse. And then you'll attribute it to, oh, I made this change. And because it lowered my glucose levels, this happened. And that's a huge jump. And I think with all of the 
like continuous glucose monitors and things that people are wearing now it's completely unnecessary like that's com- like normal human uh, metabolism should mean that when you eat food and by the way it's not just when you eat carbohydrates um for example whey protein will spike insulin levels as well like this is meant to happen so that you can store those nutrients so that you can use them at a later date so they can get into your muscle as well so it's not yeah, it, it's a it's a very strange time in health and fitness. And I think the other big problem with the underlying message that we're giving people there is that anything that spikes glucose is bad, which means that by that merit, you should have a block of cheese for breakfast instead of having some fruit. Like what, what do you actually think is going to be better for you? Like obviously the fruit is, but will it have a lower um, glucose response if you just eat fat, i.e. like a block of cheese? Yeah, but I don't think that's going to be good for your health. So why do you think people, I mean, I might be wrong about this, it, but it seems on social media only that people seem to be even more attracted to these, I don't want to use the word fads, but you know, the glucose thing. I, I know 16, eight is very popular at the moment and I don't know enough about it to whether, whether that's good or bad. Um, and a lot of responses yourself, James Smith, keep coming back to the calorie deficit and yo-yo dieting basically just seems to be more prevalent than ever. Is that the case or no, it's just, it's always been, it's always been there. It's just marketed better and more frequently now because of social media. I think there's an element of both. It is interesting that people are more likely to buy into like a bit of a narrative and a story. And it's actually quite hard to get your head around the fact that when something is so hard, like fat loss for a lot of people, it's extremely hard. If someone tells you it's extremely simple, it can be a bit confusing as in the message is almost saying it's very easy. So when mm. people are like, it's just a calorie deficit, it is, but that doesn't make it easy, right? And when you look up like all the things that can impact energy balance, you realize, oh, there's actually quite a lot to this. Now it does always come back to energy balance, no matter how you do it, whether that's cutting out carbs, whether that's intermittent fasting. But when there's a narrative behind something and you're like, oh, the reason that you're storing fat is you're spiking insulin. And when insulin's present, fat oxidation is turned down. You're like, oh, OK, now I've got this like kind of story behind it. And when you buy into a story, you're more likely to stick to that. As an example of this, the first diet I ever did was called carb backloading. And essentially the whole premise was like you keep carbs low during the day. Insulin stays low. Your body's burning fat all day. Then you train, you upregulate GLUT4 to the cell surface of your muscles. Then when you eat carbohydrates, those carbohydrates only go into your muscle cells, which are now highly sensitive and you don't store it as fat. So you only have carbs like in the evening after you've trained, right? That worked. It worked because I was in a deficit. So I ate less during the day. It worked because I bought into the narrative of it. So I was much more likely to stick to it. Mm -hmm. It worked because I had to be structured with it. Now, if it had just been, okay, you need to eat a bit less than you expend, but I'm not going to give you any structure, any guidance to that. Like you can kind of just do what you want. It doesn't really matter. It's much harder to actually action that for a lot of people. And it's not as fun a like narrative, like even saying that I'm like, oh yeah, that was quite cool when I thought that like this was happening. And, and I was stricter with it because I was like, no, I'm not going to have I'm not having carbs before dinner because I want to keep this insulin sensitivity up high. And I only want to do that. Like once I've upregulated glute four to the cell surface and all this kind of shit. So I think the buy-in is in like the store and you'll know as a marketer, like the story behind something is so important. And again, if you think that fasting is more beneficial because I don't know, you again, like staying in the fat burning zone during the day and then you're having a bit more like, realistically it's the constraints that you're putting on yourself right when when do most people overeat in the evening if you're telling someone you're stopping eating at 7 p.m that time when they're most likely to overeat probably between like 7 and 9 p.m has now been taken away that's why you're losing weight it's got nothing to do with anything else but then when you think about the psychology of these things that's quite a useful psychology because one of the reasons that people don't stick to diets is they feel over restricted now if you're telling someone like, yeah, you, you, you know, you don't have to restrict your food, but you have to eat within this eating window, then a lot of people don't feel restricted by that, right? Because they're like, oh, yeah, I can have whatever I want, but I need to just stop at seven. Fine. But then they're much less likely to overeat. Uh, it's, uh, I mean, I, I want to talk about health loads, but I know that the, the clock's ticking. Um, I, I wouldn't mind touching on alcohol, though, if that's good, because um, obviously, um, well, in, in Paul Mort's group, Paul's, I think, two years without a drink. Um, I did two years without a drink. 
um one of our clients ollie ollerton obviously talks talks a lot about um about his his sober journey so so sort of where where do you stand on alcohol is it a case of everything in moderation or if you can that should be if you want to lose weight that should be one of the first things you 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 cut out totally oh i don't think you have to cut it out totally and i think this with everything like i'm actually way more impressed with moderation like if someone's like to me oh yeah like i didn't eat chocolate for six weeks i'm like i'm more impressed if you're like yeah every now and again i'll have a couple of squares of chocolate but by then i stop you know like i have one biscuit and i really enjoy it and then i put the rest away versus someone who's like i don't have any biscuits because if i do i'll eat them all now taking like alcoholism out of this like obviously Mm -hmm. if you're an addict like that's completely different but if you're like actually alcohol brings something to my life i really enjoy a glass of wine with my partner in the evenings a couple of times a week i want you to keep that in like my whole ethos is around living your life to the fullest while losing fat or like while staying in shape or while getting in shape whatever the goal is at the time but i don't think that it's a complete false dichotomy to me that when some people are like, oh, well, you only live once as an excuse for like overeating. I'm like, yeah, you only live once. So why not feel your best, enjoy a bit of the food that you you want, but not gorge on it and actually live your life to the fullest. And the same is true with alcohol. You just have to ask yourself specific questions like, does it actually bring me joy? Mm-hmm. And can I get that from someone else? Like, yes, there are calories in it, so it should be accounted for. And, you know, like, would my life be better without it? I think a lot of people benefit from doing like the even like 30 days without alcohol and then deciding, is this that now something I want to include in my life or did I not actually really miss it at all? And then then it's up to you whether you want to include that or not. I don't drink personally, but I always say when people ask me, I say, I don't not drink. I just don't drink. Right. Which sounds like convoluted, but I'm not like I'm this many years sober. Like, I'm pretty sure maybe like nine months ago I had a margarita or something because I just wanted one and it was fine and it was quite nice and then I stopped like you know I have I don't really like alcohol that much so it's very easy you know and that's also why I never talk about that that much because the other interesting concept that this kind of relates to is like nothing is an achievement if it doesn't require hard work so for me to be like I'm basically 20 years sober or whatever. It's I'm not. Mm. It, it doesn't require any hard work. I don't really like alcohol, so I don't eat like I don't drink it that often. Whereas for other people, actually the fact that you're two years sober, that might be a huge thing for you. That might have been a huge lifestyle change. That might be a huge achievement because it required a lot of effort for you. Same with like some of my mates might run like a 5K on the weekend. And I'm like, cool, that's not really an achievement because they can quite easily run a 5K. But I also might have a client who walks their first 5K and that's a freaking phenomenal achievement because they've never been able to walk that far. So I think it's all to do with like if it's hard for you or not. But back to the alcohol point, you can absolutely get an incredible shape and include alcohol. I wouldn't over include it. I'd also think about the consequential behaviors like if you get drunk, you might then eat more. Mm -hmm. We know there's a, a slight impact of alcohol on rates of muscle protein synthesis. So you wouldn't want to do what all rugby players do and like do a rugby game and then go and drink a load of alcohol because your ability to recover is going to be impaired so there's little things to consider but yeah it's you can absolutely include it and with most of my clients it's like even that um the impact on muscle protein synthesis is pretty much irrelevant for them like you know they're recreational gym goers and they just want to get in shape and enjoy their life like they don't need to worry about the minutiae of that amazing so i mean with all this knowledge you have and you're you're still learning and the businesses you run what are your sort of secrets into a work life harmony we don't talk about work-life balance so much here it's work-life harmony how 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 do you how do you keep on on top of everything what what what's some of the, the secrets to your to your productivity so i will say that i've been single for many years i do have a girlfriend now um, and that has had to like shift my harmony somewhat, uh, but it hasn't been too hard. I think partly, and I don't know if you're the same, but like, I've got a very supportive partner. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and I think work-life harmony or balance looks different for everybody. And it's very easy to get stuck in like what other people's perceptions of that are, which are normally based around like the standard nine to five, right? 
And I think with anything, it's like, if you want extreme results, you need to have extreme measures, right? Like I have big business goals. There's no way that I will ever achieve them with a nine to five mindset or just being like, oh, well, you know, I should have a better life balance. Nobody's achieved anything great. Like if you look at athletes, they don't have a good life balance. You know, they have to make sacrifices in their life in order to achieve the goal they want. No one's getting to the Olympic final and it's like, oh yeah, I've got this excellent life balance. No, they've had to sacrifice huge areas of their life to get there. And I think the important part is, are you consciously making those sacrifices? Because when I look back over the last couple of years, I'm like, yeah, there are there have been distinct choices that I've made to build my business that have negatively impacted other areas of my life. But I made them under the knowledge that that would happen. And I accept that consequence of that. So it, it kind of, it depends what you want and you have to be realistic with that. And I think it always comes back to like living a life based on your values. And it's so easy to get distracted by others, whether that's like what society wants for you and the norm of like, you know, you should go to uni, get a job, buy a house, have a mortgage, get this kind of car, have two kids by this age and blah, blah, blah. Or whether it's just the people that you hang around with because it's very easy to get attracted to someone else's goal or how someone else is living, or maybe I should do that because they're doing that. I've definitely noticed that like with, even like with my own business partners who have different goals or different values or different like life balance, and it makes you question your own. And I think questioning it is important, but also knowing what's important to you and what goals you want to achieve and realistically what that's going to take. Because it's very naive to think that you can achieve this amazing thing if you don't put the effort in to get there. And if your goals are extreme and and like I was kind of bringing this back to like fat loss examples, because it's just easy to conceptualize. But if you're like, I want to get shredded, I want to compete on a bodybuilding stage. You can't have life balance. Like you will have to sacrifice part of your life to get there. Now that's a choice that you're going to make. And if you want to do that, fine, but make it under the knowledge that there will be sacrifices there. If, for example, you're like, I want to lose, I don't know, five pounds, get into a healthy BMI range, be a little bit more active. You don't need to make any sacrifices. You might need to make some compromises along the way, but you don't need to make a sacrifice, right? And it might be the same with like your business. Like you might be like, oh yeah, I just want to make enough to live, get by, live a comfortable life. Okay, cool. Like you can probably have amazing life balance running your own business. But if you're like, I want to push this to the limit. I want to see how people I can impact. I want to you know, I've got really big goals here. There will be sacrifices involved with that. You can't have it all. Uh, nothing great was ever achieved from the comfort zone. I can't remember where I read that recently. But you, you mentioned the word effort. Um, and you can never underestimate that, that some, some people are willing to put the effort in, but a lot of people aren't. And that, and that and that's fine. Like you say, it depends on what they want to achieve. So um, what sort of, for Emma Story Gordon, how did it look like for you putting one one foot outside your comfort zone? What sort of keeps you on edge? So... Um, one quote that I love about that that I remind myself of all the time is like don't get upset about the results you didn't get from the work you didn't do and I think that for everyone is just so important Uh, and also on top of that kind of the belief that I have and this isn't and I know for a fact this isn't always true right but I just tell myself if someone's further ahead than me they've worked harder they've worked smarter or they've done you know they've got more experience or they've got more knowledge something right They've worked for that. As that stops you feeling resentful of people that are further ahead and also gives you a bit of the growth mindset of like, oh, cool. If I want to get good at pull-ups and that person's better at pull-ups than me, I'm just going to believe that they've been practicing for longer. And most of the time it's true, right? Sometimes it's not. They're genetically gifted, but there's nothing you can do about that other stuff. All you can do actionable is like, I, I can try harder. Um, For me, pushing myself outside my comfort zone, I think it's something I need to do a little bit more of uh definitely for a while it was like public speaking I really want to get good at that I feel like I'm a bit more comfortable doing that now so I think it's probably going to be pushing the mentorship a bit getting into that space learning a little bit more about the marketing side of stuff I'd love to talk to you about that um and just like I guess yeah broadening my horizons in that field a little bit more um I've got a little bit more interested in like my own personal finances, learning more about that kind of stuff, um, a little bit of property stuff. So I guess oh, okay. just just new new stuff. I do want to find something that scares me a little bit and and like push myself there. And because I think even when you asked me that question, I was like, huh, I'm I'm pretty comfortable, and I don't think that's necessarily a good place to oh. be. 
that's a bad place for, for me and my business partner, Joel. We know if we're a bit comfortable, it's I, I'm not saying, you know, you don't want to be so far outside your comfort zone all the time. It just causes, you know, unnecessary stress and anxiety. But every now and then to have, you know, one foot out of your comfort zone to keep yourself on edge. Um, you know, before the pandemic, we got very comfortable in business, but bloody hell, did we learn a harsh lesson? You know, we lost 80% of our business overnight when, when lockdown hit. Um, but that forced us to reassess and, and you know, we got back to where we were. But I mean, um, we do speaking and stuff. We've got a book out. But seeing you on stage at IFSO is you, um, Paul, um, Dr. Mike, um, uh, was it Sophie. There's like five of you on stage. And and you all, you all look pretty cool. I mean, Paul was hyper and wanted to talk all the time, you know, as usual. Um, how do you feel when you, when you do like ma massive gigs like that? Is that like water off a duck's back for you now? Or are you sort of, no, no, I'm... Um, this is still a bit out of my comfort zone. I think with that panel in particular, those are like some of my best mates. So like Sophia, I mentor, I know her really well. Oh. Mike and Dan, um, we we used to run a podcast together. They're like two of my best mates. And then Paul, I actually coach. So I know them all like really, really well. So I was quite comfortable in that environment for sure. Um, I think when I did my solo talk at IFS, I was a little bit more nervous. But I've also had, like, I had some really good public speaking coaching. And just for me, like, reframing it as opposed, I think most people get nervous about public speaking because they're making it about themselves. And I definitely was. I was like, what if I get something wrong? What if people don't like it? What if it's not what they wanted? But instead of thinking, I've got, I don't know, 45 minutes here. What can I leave? Like, how do I want people to leave? What how could I improve their life in one like small way or give them some piece of knowledge or something? And, and then it becomes more about them. And I even frame that at the start of my talks. So I'm like, this is what you're going to get from the next 45 minutes. This is what I want you to take away. And then, yeah, it kind of takes the pressure off you because you're more thinking, what can I give? And the same is true with social media. Like most people are nervous about, I don't know, putting out a reel or doing a live or something because they're making it about them mm -hmm. instead of what can I say here that might help somebody. That's probably the number one mistake we see in marketing. Not enough people lead with value. It's all take, take, take. No one ever says, hey, what, what can I do to help you? They just, I, I don't know what it is, but that's one of the first things you work on with clients because usually it's not about attracting new money in. It's the money that's already there on the table. The people are already in their community. They're just not communicating with them as, as, as well as they should. So um, you talked about values a lot now. Now, I know you're, you're a big fan of journaling, obviously one of Paul's students. Um, I used to think it was bollocks, but... Paul made me do it three months. And now I'd say it's probably the biggest thing I've done to change my life. So you, your values journal. I mean, obviously I've seen all the, the VJ puns. They probably must come to you every day now. So um, without giving all your secrets away, um, do you want to share some, some of the things you, you do share in, in your journal with, with your clients and, and, and that their purpose and, and how they help uh, your clients? Yeah. So I was exactly the same as you. I thought, why would I write about stuff when I could just do stuff? Isn't it just like distraction from what I actually need to do? And the kind of clicking point for me was realizing that journaling on like a neurological level is actually we rewiring the way that you think, right? So even if you just look at like simple, like gratitude practices or finding positive in things and reframing them, I noticed after a while that it wasn't an effort anymore. I wasn't like, Oh, that shit thing happened. I'll, have to like I don't know be in a bad mood for the rest of the day then I got to the stage of like that negative thing happened but how can I reframe it into a positive and that took some cognitive effort and now I literally like it's like immediate like if I don't know say for example we had to cancel this podcast I'd be like that's a bit annoying I'll have to reschedule it but I would immediately be like oh but I've got an hour now to do blah 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 like what else could I do with this time and it instead of it being an effort or instead of it not even being on my radar that that could be a positive I'm, I'm like immediately there's the positive and I think that's a lot of what journaling does is everyone's stuck in this negativity bias and that's like human evolution as well right it was more important for us to see negatives and things and avoid danger than it was for us to see all the positives and happy shiny light and whatever but now that you know the negatives aren't a tiger chasing you and you might potentially die from that it's it's less consequential and it actually just means that you're in a bad mood all day it's important to be able to reframe those and change those into positives and that's what journaling does and it took me a long time to buy into that because I I yeah I was the same I thought what a waste of time and then even and this is coming on to why I started the the VJ which stands for values journal 
um the reason that I did that is because I was like well then what do you write about and that was what I was always getting from clients was like, yeah, yeah, I, I'm kind of bought into journaling now, now that you've talking about, like you've spoken about like how it rewires your brain network and like why it's beneficial, but like, what do I write? So essentially the BJ kind of t- like gives you a couple of questions each day to review your day, to reflect on it, to learn from it, to find positives in it, to see what you're grateful for, and then to kind of plan your next day. And it's very simple and that's all it does. And I just made it on amazon kdp it's not an amazing journal i try and keep it quite cheap all the money from that goes to breast cancer uk oh wow and uh yeah and quite a lot of people have bought it now so that's oh, nice amazing yeah. yeah gratitude just that word that was probably enough to make me not want a journal but now sort of seeing the light as it were you know whenever we have our quarterly meetings here with the team the first thing we always do 15 minutes on the clock write down all your wins for the past quarter even if you're stuck just think 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 and every time they can't believe how many wins they've had. And so it's just trying to make it more, you know, I, I don't want to make them journal, but most of them are now just because they've seen that shit, whenever I'm feeling a bit down, a bit blue, I've now got this go-to source of, of things I have accomplished to help people. And sometimes you just need to see it to, to remind yourself of what you've done. It's such a good example, but even with like the coaches that I mentor, if they have 10 signups, but one person drops off, they, they're like, this is the word. Like, I don't know what's wrong with my business. Something's not working. It must be that my coaching isn't good enough. Blah, blah, blah. I'm like, it, it's such strong negativity bias. And like, I see it in my own. Like, I see someone who's like, oh, you know, I'm, 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 can I cancel my membership? I'm going to leave the program. I'm like, oh my God, what are we doing wrong? Like, and then I'm like, oh, wait, but there's 599 other people that are really happy. Okay, fine. Like, okay. And, and you just need to like rationalize it. But often you don't write those things down. And more with my clients, I see this. They'll be like, oh, I don't know. Every time I have a biscuit, I always overeat. And it's like, you don't. You're just remembering the time that you did overeat because that's impactful and that's negative and you feel like you ruined everything. Not all the other times that you actually had a little bit of chocolate and didn't overeat because that's meant to be quote unquote normal and you don't see it as a win. And I think so much of the positive stuff that happens we're just like, yeah, well, I signed up that client. And yeah, we made that, I don't know, for your for your guys, it might be like, yeah, well, that that campaign did really well. Fine, but that was meant to happen. And it's only the campaigns that don't do well that mm. you're like, oh, nothing's working. Yeah. I remember when people used to unsubscribe from our mailers, they used to go like, who's doing that? I'll go and find them on Facebook and see, right, what have we done wrong? But then realizing when you do lead with value in your emails, your marketing, in your business, the people who do move away from you, that they're just saying, hey, you're not for me anymore. So gives you more time to focus on the people who are still there. And, and yeah, so, I mean, um, I know the clock's ticking. I've got, I've got four more questions for you, if that's, if that, if that's cool. Um, this is one I asked Paul. I said, what does an average day look like for Paul Mort? And he said, fuck average. I think that's probably one of our most popular clips, to be honest. Oh, so, uh, I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a sure, I'm sure you don't have an average day um, either, but do you want to sort of ex- explain what, what a, a weekday might look like for ESG? Yeah. So, I mean, I love Paul's comment about fuck average. I think that generally as well. And it kind of comes back to like the life balance that you want. Like if you want an average life balance, then expect average results. Now, when you look at the average of the people in the UK, you're not going to want that, right? Most people have less than a thousand pounds of savings. Most marriages end in divorce. Uh, Most people are overweight. So you're like, even just off those three things, like if you want to behave like the average, that's the result you're going to get. And I normally talk to clients about this when they're like, I don't know, so-and-so's commented on my lunch in the staff room or something, or like why I'm bringing in a salad or why I'm not, I don't know, having fish and chips every night or something. It's like, well, if you want the average result, you you just follow what the average people do. But most people don't want that result, right? Most people don't want to be overweight. But if the average in the UK is that you are overweight, stop looking at what is quote unquote normal because that's what's going to get you that result. And if that's not what you want, then you're going to have to accept that you can't behave in an average way. Um, My average day looks like I get up quite early. I like to do 30 minutes at least of writing, 30 minutes to an hour of writing, and then just catch up on like any kind of fires. So I'll like quickly check emails and stuff and see if there's anything I need to do. So do you mean sort of 5am club early or or a bit later or? Yeah, about 5am. Yeah. Brilliant. Okay. Um, then I will plan my day a little bit more meticulously. I'm obsessed with Google Calendar, so everything is in there. 
but like for example this morning I'll look at stuff and be like right these little gaps what needs done like where can I where do I need to yeah create content or whatever it is I need to do so I'll look a little bit more closely and make, make a bit of a plan for that and then um, that usually my work day starts at like 9 a.m. So I'll make sure that I've gone for a walk and trained before 9 a.m. And I kind of see it as like taking care of myself before I then give to others. I don't think I show up half as well. Like if right now I was like, I've not trained, I've not had breakfast, I've not like been able to write or look at my own emails, I wouldn't be concentrating on this conversation. So that's important to me to kind of get all my stuff done before 9 a.m., and then I normally start calls with mentoring clients or podcasts or coaching clients or whatever it is. Uh, and then generally now I'm quite strict on not doing any calls past 5.30. So I try and stop every, like I didn't book anything in after 5, uh, after 5 p.m. Um, and that's actually oh, no, big, it's difficult. Yeah. Especially when but, you've got like clients in America. I'm still oh, like, wow. Well. Mm-hmm. So you've got clients all over the world then? Yeah fantastic yeah i mean the vast majority like 90 percent, probably in the uk but yeah we have clients all over yeah and when it comes to like basically i guess putting on your own oxygen mask first saying no to certain people and things that don't align with your values i mean obviously sometimes there's a bit of pushback you know i, I know from family for example have to say no to a family member because what they want it just takes you away from what you need to get done that in itself can be a bit of a challenge mm. yeah but- i think you have to have people that understand and I think sometimes not asking permission and it's just like, this is what I do works wow. quite well and not, yeah, not really, not making a big deal out of it either. I see this a lot with dieting of like, oh, well, you know, when I have to say to people this, this and this, I'm like, no, you can sit at a meal and have half your plate and say that you're full and you don't have to tell anyone anything. You don't have to be like, I'm dieting and then everyone has something to say about it. You just quietly get on with your own shit. And same with like, what I do in the morning I'm like yeah this is what I do I'm not going to make a big deal out of it I'm not gonna you know it doesn't shouldn't really impact anybody else I just get on with my own stuff to make sure that I show up at my best amazing amazing so I mean uh last question before a couple of quick fire uh questions how do people find out more about Emma Story Gordon what's the best place to go so for anything fitness related at ESG fitness on Instagram or esgfitness.co.uk and then you will find links there to other things. But if you're interested in the mentorship, that's at AF Mentors. And then if you're interested in nutrition education, that's at EIQ Nutrition. Amazing. Right. We'll make sure we'll put those links in the show notes. A couple of up for a couple of quick fire questions to round things off. Okay. Absolutely. We do we do this all, I guess. Right. What's your favorite film? So interestingly, don't don't watch TV, don't like films. I can hardly sit wow. through them. Wow. Yeah. So my, my youngest daughter, she's um she's 14 now. And she just said the other day, yeah, I don't do films anymore. Just just I haven't got the time. And it's like, oh, right. OK. So, oh, wow. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to get my head out. We, we don't watch much TV, but we'll sit down and watch maybe a couple of hours in the evening. So, oh, wow. So even even as a kid, you didn't go to the cinema. That wasn't your cup of tea or oh, no, when, other, things to, kid, other things to focus on there. When I was a kid, but I never really understood why I hated it so much. <laughs> and I think it was just like I just find it really boring now and again I can get into it but very rarely and it's not something that I like to spend my time doing so I don't think I've got a favorite fair enough well I'll change the question then favorite book um so all audible because very dyslexic really struggle to read again that took me a long time to figure out why I hated reading but now like audible has changed my life I think at the moment I have a few, but I would say The Happiness Advantage is a really good book for everybody to read. Uh, it, basically, the premise is that most people align like happiness and success. And his whole narrative is like they are aligned, but not because successful like success makes you happy, but because happiness leads to more success. Right. Oh. So if you're happy, you're more likely to go for the job promotion. You're more likely to start conversations. You're more likely to for other people to want you to like be there and be around right like really negative people probably don't get invited to that meeting or that party or that whatever you know so his whole thing is actually being happy opens up more opportunities means you're more likely to try again if you fail and I guess what he uses happy but it's like an optimism bias as well of like if you're more optimistic you're probably more likely to be successful so I thought that 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 was a very good book oh right I'll have to go check that out um last question 
what's been your favorite mistake oh there's been many um probably one of the most impactful was like failing that phd i'm really glad that that it really hurt at the time but i'm really glad that that happened and then i don't know if you're the same but when you're like i'm in a really good place at the moment generally and i really love my life and i love like how i've created it it's certainly not been an accident um and I know that it's so cliche, but like, I really appreciate all the failures along the way because you wouldn't be here. You know, like there's nothing I'd change because I'm happy where I am. As much as at the time things have been mega painful. Yeah, like I'm pretty happy where I am now. Wins and lessons, as some say. Yeah. Wins and lessons. What's yours been? I went for an interview, but it it wasn't, um, it wasn't the kind of interview I thought it was. I thought I was interviewing for a media company back in the day, um, but it wasn't. It was a recruitment company. But then... Um, they placed me at ITV and that was my first job in in marketing. So so that yeah, that's been that's been my my favorite mistake. Yeah, because if I hadn't gone for that interview, I thought I thought this was a media job and they started talking about recruitment. Um but yeah, so I started ITV got back in ninety-six and and here we are now, a hundred years later. Um so yeah, that's that's been mine. Well, thank you. No one's ever asked it me is, that. <laughs> yeah, it's mad to think those like little things that either you see as a mistake or you I don't know, just little things as well. Like, for example, I met one of my, I've known Amelia, who I run EIQ with for years, just from fitness industry. And we both like, you know, from a distance admired each other. And like, I'm sure I was a little bit jealous of how intelligent she was and all this stuff, right? And then one year I invited her and a couple of other like fitness girls up to like hang out and go for a walk and stuff in this lodge in Scotland. And that was the start of EIQ. And I remember because she'd been asked by another company to write a nutrition course and I was like what that's what they're going to pay you I was like ask for at least double or just and I was like do it yourself you're so much better than that you can absolutely do this yourself and then anyway we decided to do it together but even that little thing of like wow if if we hadn't gone on that little trip and not only like yeah we built a business together and I'm so proud of it but she is genuinely one of my best mates now we've traveled all around the world we spend a ton of time together like I can't imagine like genuinely my life without her and how impactful that's been on me and I'm like that that tiny little thing was you know why that happened and then yeah it's just really interesting and obviously like you know none of the other girls that that came to that do I have like a really strong bond with now so yeah I don't know if you felt with your business partner how did you get into that well like uh, why I, I went to a networking meeting and, you know, I, I think if we carried on this thread, we probably realized there's a ton of mistakes um, that have worked out for the best. Um, and I went to a networking meeting I didn't want to go to. Um, but when he stood up and did his 60 seconds, like his elevator pitch, he just stood out in the room. I mean, he had this shiny gray suit on for a start, to be honest, so he stood out anyway. Um, and we just got talking. And then we started doing business together because he was more of a designer. I'm more of a copywriter. Um we end up doing joint projects and here we are sort of like 12, 13 years. And I probably spend more time with him than, than with my wife, but that suits my wife as well. Um, and, and yeah, it's been, it's been an education and um, I just love when um, maybe I'm doing the same as you, I don't know, but when you were talking about Amelia, you just smiled all the way through. Um, and yeah, yeah, so tell, tell obviously how much it means to you. So um, right. It's, it's been amazing speaking to you, Emma. Thanks for everything you shared um, with our listeners and and hopefully we can catch up again. Brilliant. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. I'm sure we will. Brilliant. Thanks, Emma.